1: New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SEAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. If you'd like to know more about SEAC's latest activities, click on the links included on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts about Southeast Asia, Check out the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre's podcast series, SEAC Stories, available on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Another great sponsor of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned research centre committed to the study of and engagement with Asia and the Pacific. The Institute's research focuses on politics, security and economic development, emphasising the enhancement of links between businesses, governments and academia. For more information on Griffith Asia Institute's activities, click on the website link on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website.
0: The tail end of the 20th century was a good time for constitutional lawyers. Leapfrogging around the globe, they went from one country to the next to offer their services on how to amend, write or rewrite state constitutions in politically turbulent times, following the collapse of the Soviet Union and with it the Communist Bloc. Meanwhile, amid the flurry of constitution writing in this period, officials in one Southeast Asian country went about drafting a new constitution without the involvement of interloping experts from abroad or or for that matter, many of those at home. That country was Myanmar. There, a military dictatorship established a constitutional drafting process that culminated in 2008 in a new state constitution, one that sets the terms for political contestation and representation in Myanmar today. As the country prepares to go to the polls amid the COVID-19 pandemic, For the third time in a decade. With me to discuss that process, its output, and its implications for politics in Myanmar today is Melissa Crouch, author of The Constitution of Myanmar, a contextual analysis published in 2019 by Hart. Melissa is an associate professor in the law faculty of the University of New South Wales, and she's speaking with me, Nick Cheeseman, a fellow in the College of Asia and the Pacific, Australian National University, and co-host of the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Melissa, thanks for coming on to discuss your new book about the constitution of Myanmar.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Why do we need a book on the constitution of Myanmar?
1: Well, you're right, Nick. Myanmar fits uneasily in the 1990s in terms of how it went about the drafting process. But I think what it does highlight is the importance of studying the role of constitutions in authoritarian regimes. Now, this is a topic that for scholars of comparative constitutional law, they've come to in perhaps more recent decades. But there'll be many scholars, and particularly those who are interested from a law and society perspective, who would say that constitutions can matter, even in authoritarian regimes. They're not necessarily a facade, although sometimes they might be. But the real question is, how do they matter. And so that's what I try to explore in this book.
0: So the book's really intended for an audience of comparativists as well as people who are interested in the situation in Myanmar specifically?
1: Yes, that's right. So this series is very much designed for a comparative audience, and so it places Myanmar in conversation with a broader range of comparative studies. But it is also for a audience interested in Southeast Asia or Myanmar specifically. In some sense, that's the tension of the book, to try and speak to two audiences, and that was a challenge. But Nevertheless, it was in part also in recognition that obviously for a global audience, Myanmar has become of interest in recent years for a number of reasons, both issues of human rights and just the broader opening up. And therefore, there's been a growing interest in just really trying to understand, well, what does this constitution mean? When does it matter and why?
0: And why were you the one to write this book? How did you get into the topic? So
1: I had studied Indonesia for a number of years and its transition to democracy, which of course included a major change to their constitution and a process of constitutional amendment. And in Myanmar, there are many similarities in terms of the role of the military and The aspirations for constitutional reform. Now, I had had some connections with the Burmese community here in Australia since the mid 2000s. And then, as Myanmar began to open up, I was fortunate to be involved with some initiatives around constitutional democracy and workshops, working with lawyers, with members of parliament, with civil society who were interested in informing discussions around how to change the current constitution.
0: I alluded to the history of the constitution running process in the introduction, and you say at the outset of the book that partly for reasons of process and partly for substantive reasons, the 2008 constitution faces a credibility deficit. How come? In
1: 1988, we saw the end of the socialist regime and the incoming of a more direct military rule. Soon after that, it was the military itself that decided to initiate the drafting of a constitution, but they did so after a election that was highly contested and where the outcome of the election or the results were never honoured. So in the 1990 election, the National League for Democracy would have been able to form government. They were never allowed to, and the military instead said. We need to first draft a constitution. So the military was able to decide who participated in that process. Although there were some elected representatives who were allowed to participate, later some of those boycotted the process. And the process was marred for a whole range of reasons. And so that partly contributes to the credibility deficit of the process. The other major issue was that once it came to actually Approving the constitution, we fast forward to 2008 when Myanmar was affected by a devastating cyclone Nargis, where many thousands of people died and the devastation was significant. And yet, the referendum to approve this constitution was only delayed by about 10 days. So, the military, in many ways, was determined to go ahead. With the referendum, despite the fact that many of its people had recently gone through a major natural disaster, and
0: how did the constitution pass the referendum?
1: Well, that's a good question. The results are highly questionable, and the constitution itself claims something like you know over ninety odd percent approved this constitution in a referendum, and yet it seems fairly clear that perhaps for most people they had in fact never seen the constitution uh, before the referendum was held.
0: Can you fill us in a little bit more on the process of writing it, please? Where does this constitution come from? Who wrote it?
1: The writing process took place in two phases, or at least uh, the consultation that was said to be part of this process took place in two phases. So from 1993 until 1996, and then there was a, a period of hiatus and it recommenced in 2004, although really it's fairly clear that it was the early 1990s when the core of this document was drafted. And so for that reason, in the book, I suggest that actually we need to have a reperiodization of the origins of this constitution, that in fact... Many of the core ideas that are now present in the 2008 constitution were in fact formulated in the 1990s and that have their origins from the military rule of that time. And that goes right to the sort of very core and heart of the constitution and the animating ideology that uh, is still present in Myanmar today and is very much focused on the role of the military in government.
0: Well, let's turn to that and the substance of the constitution. You say that the constitution enables the persistence of a military state. What do you mean by that?
1: There are three core ideas, I think, that make up this military state. In many ways, it's a way to capture the co-relationship of the military and civilian authorities. But there are three key aspects to this. So the first is that the military has a leading role in the governance of the country. This is evident in in many ways, such as the role of military representatives in the parliament, 25%, but it's also evident in indirect ways. So former military officers in the administration and other ways in which the military has an influence on really all aspects and branches of government. So also in the courts and in the administration. So, that first aspect is the role of the military. The second is more of the ideological aspect, which is in Myanmar often referred to as the three national causes. This was an idea that came about in the early 1990s and was very much part of the rhetoric of the former military regime and is now embedded in the constitution. It includes things like an emphasis on national solidarity. This is a a sort of euphemism, if you like, for the idea that no group should cede or leave the union. It also refers to ideas such as national sovereignty, which... While many countries would would refer to ideas of national sovereignty, this was very much a mantra of the military regime. It has its roots in the isolated nature of Myanmar's military regime from the 1990s and the suspicions that they had of the international community. The third aspect then is this idea of coercive centralism. So here I'm trying to get at how the state is governed and organised and the way in which power is still very much centralised. So there are lots of debates in Myanmar about issues such as federalism, but really this constitution and the way that the military state is structured is a highly, highly centralised system, one where the states and regions have very little agency or are often subject to the direction or guidance of the central government.
0: Some people have argued that this constitution has federal qualities, but evidently you don't share that view. Why did they get it so wrong from your standpoint?
1: There's a lot of debate on this. And even more recently, some of the military officers did in fact try to claim that the constitution is federal, but I suggest it's not for a number of reasons. One is simply in terms of intent. This was not a constitution that was intended to be federal. It was drafted at a time when the military was trying to negotiate ceasefires with a range of ethnic armed groups. And while it was part of an effort to incorporate those groups within the state, and there are some forms of cultural recognition or perhaps symbolic recognition of territory, embedded in the constitution, I suggest it's not enough to call it a federal constitution. So for example, the states and regions, their head of the state or the region, so the chief minister, um, is not someone who is uh, directly elected. And in many ways, it's someone who is effectively uh, appointed in consultation with, with the national government and so is dependent upon the national government and reports to them.
0: You mentioned the chief ministers of the subnational states and regions. That's an example of a novel office that the constitution introduced. What other novel offices and institutions did it introduce?
1: Yes, so the constitution, you know, for the first time brings back a parliament. And that, of course, has been something that many observers have watched with great interest. And this legislature has really been at the heart of some of the changes that have taken place in Myanmar since 2011 and so I do really Prioritize that in the book, which is unusual for scholars who are focusing on comparative constitutional law. So, of course, we often prefer to talk about the courts and to prioritize the role of the courts in matters of constitutional debate. But instead, I suggest that we still need to take seriously countries where the courts may have a peripheral role, but where instead there may be other institutions that are the primary forum for constitutional discussion and debate. And so I suggest and argue that in Myanmar, it is very much the legislature that is at the heart of constitutional discussions and debate, and that that is the most important forum.
0: What about the status of citizens, and for that matter, non-citizens' rights under the constitution, which rights matter, and how and why do they matter? In
1: comparative constitutional law we love to talk about bills of rights in constitutions and certainly um you know scholars who as you mentioned at the beginning in the 1990s were working in countries around the world advising on constitutional reform would often say well you know you should have a bill of rights and it should be at, towards the start of the constitution as a way of signalling the priority um, and emphasis placed on the protection of individual rights. Now, if we look at the Constitution of Myanmar, that's certainly not the case. Um, While there is a section that focuses on citizens' uh, duties and rights, it is towards the end of the document. And crucially, it has this concept of duties tied to the concept of rights. What I suggest in the book is that actually this is to some extent, socialist in orientation, or at least it has affinities with socialist regimes where constitutions would often emphasise the duties citizens had to the state. And I think for this reason, rights are subordinate or secondary and are certainly not given Priority. So, as a result, we have seen very few cases to the Constitutional Tribunal, which is, of course, a new institution. But because of the fact that it's heard very few cases, it has had very little influence on discussions about the meaning and use of the constitution. And really, it doesn't hear cases about the protection of individual rights. While there is a mechanism for individuals to go to the Supreme Court, this is a mechanism that has its origins in common law systems. So it's known as the writs, which are basically just a kind of remedy that an individual can seek if they feel that their constitutional rights have been infringed. But the Supreme Court has not been receptive to those cases. And so there've been a lot of concerns and criticisms about the way that the Supreme Court has handled those rights cases.
0: So Myanmar's had two prior constitutions, one in 1947 and one in 1974. How does the constitution compare in this respect to those and in any other respects that you think are salient for someone thinking about the constitutional history of Myanmar?
1: So in contrast to perhaps other constitutions around the world that were drafted in the 1990s or 2000s that looked to comparative models, Myanmar in many ways was looking inward and backwards. So the 1947 constitution has affinities with the Indian constitution and with its common law heritage, but is also a bit of a mix and had borrowed from ideas in Ireland and Yugoslavia and other places. The 1974 constitution is a different beast altogether. This was a constitution uh, drafted during the heights of the socialist military regime. It is drafted very much along lines of socialist constitutions. Um, It's quite a minimalist constitution. It prioritizes the role of the party and the loyalties of the people to the party. To some extent, it does have some forms of symbolic or cultural recognition in the way that socialist constitutions did, which was to sort of offer this idea of equality as sameness. So in theory, all recognised ethnic groups in Myanmar were to be treated the same, if you like. One key difference in the 1974 constitution is that it took away the role of the courts and that any matters of constitutional disputes were actually to be decided by the unicameral socialist uh, parliament of the time. So when we come to the 2008 Constitution, in many ways it really is a hybrid. It is an unusual mosaic that mixes together ideas both from the 1947 Constitution and from the 1974 Constitution. So for that reason, it is multi-vocal. There, I think there are different ways of reading it, or different ways of emphasising some of its key parts. Because on one hand, as I mentioned, you have this emphasis on citizens' duties, which is similar to the 1974 constitution. But on the other hand, you have these constitutional writs as a remedy to bring rights claims to the Supreme Court, which actually has its origins in the 1947 constitution. So I think going forward, it will take the next generation of constitutional lawyers and politicians and academics to really think through how this works together and what aspects of this constitution are ones that fit with the democratic future that many in Myanmar would hope for.
0: What about religion? A lot's been made of the reemergence of politically alert Buddhist monks and politically active groups identifying as Buddhist in recent years, including in relation to the attacks on Muslims in 2012 and 2013 that precipitated or perhaps anticipated the massive state violence of 2017 that resulted in the largest refugee camps in the world in Bangladesh as people fled across the border. Against that backdrop, is there a special place for Buddhism in this constitution, and if not, uh, those groups demanding it?
1: When we come to Myanmar's constitution, we can't really separate issue of religion from the issue of national races, as it is referred to in Myanmar. So on one hand, you're right that the constitution does give a special place to Buddhism, although it does also recognize and name specifically a number of other religions, and this includes Islam and Christianity, among others. Having said that, this recognition of religion in the constitution is in this section about rights and duties, and there hasn't been sort of significant court cases on this to try and figure out, well, what does this mean and how do you balance, for example, the prioritization of Buddhism over this naming of other religions? What I think is perhaps more important for many minority groups um, in Myanmar, which includes religious minorities, is the provisions around citizenship. So the whole constitution is designed around this idea of national races. And this idea is that there are certain official groups that are recognized by the state. And by implication, there are certain groups that are not recognized. Uh, Post-2011, we have seen religion used in politics in very overt ways, or specifically in the lead-up to the 2015 elections, which was, of course, you know, the historic election in Myanmar. This was the first time that the National League for Democracy had run across most seats. It was generally considered to be the first free and fair election, although I would argue that that reputation is questionable. And the reason it's questionable is because in the lead-up to the 2015 election, There was a concerted effort to effectively disenfranchise people who hold temporary identity cards, most of whom are the Rohingya. And so as a result, that election looked very different perhaps to the 1990s or even to 2010, where we did see some Rohingya run for office and actually be successful. So the 2015 elections, particularly for some minority groups, uh, particularly Muslims, is uh, seen with some frustration because it was felt that there was a concerted effort to really exclude the Rohingya but also to in many ways exclude Muslims more broadly. So even the National League for Democracy declined to include any Muslims on their central executive committee and that was seen with great frustration by the Muslim community.
0: Listen, let's Pause here for a sponsor's message, and when we come back, we'll pick up a bit more on this topic of minorities and the situation in Rakhine State, talk about contestation on and around the Constitution in the 2010s, and then turn to the 2020 elections and the pandemic. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's S-E-Asia Institute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we are today in conversation with Melissa Crouch about the constitution of Myanmar, a contextual approach. Melissa, before the break, we were talking a bit about the situation of Muslims and the massive violence in Rakhine State. And the government of Myanmar has, in the last few years, seen its star internationally first rise massively on the back of the elections in 2015 and then plummet with the enormous state violence against people identifying or identified as Rohingya, burning and looting of villages, murder, torture, enforced disappearance, sexual violence, you name it. Under this constitution, who's responsible for all that? Where does the buck stop?
1: Yes, that's a good question. And I think it goes just to the bigger question of, well, since 2016, who is in charge? 2015, we know the National League for Democracy won the election. So, since 2016, they have formed government. They are the majority in the national legislature. But as I point out in the book, there is a delicate balance, if you like, between the government of the day, which for now is a civilian government, and the role that the military plays, both in the legislature, but across a range of institutions, including the idea, I suggest, that actually the military could be understood as a fourth branch of government. So it both has influence in the more traditional, if you like, branches of government, the judiciary, the legislature, the executive. But in many ways, it also sits above that and is the supreme and leading body. So this goes back to my idea of the military state and the role that the military plays. So who is in charge? Well, you know, there are three obvious possibilities. One is the commander-in-chief. The commander-in-chief is mentioned explicitly in the constitution and there is a lot of ambiguity around that role. So, so, for example, the constitution doesn't make any effort to limit that role in terms of things like, how is this person appointed? How long is their term? I mean, what is their role and function? What are their powers? That's not really explicit in the constitution, although it's clear that the commander-in-chief Does play a leading role, uh, particularly in constitutional emergencies. Um, Now, coming to Rakhine State, there is not actually a constitutional emergency that has been declared there, and I'll explain why. So, the National League for Democracy, there are two possible leaders here. One, you have the president, who I guess is the formal leader um, of the country and who is backed by the NLD. But when the NLD took office in 2016, the first thing they did was that they decided to create the office of state councillor. This office of state councillor is occupied by Ong San Suu Kyi. Now, there is a lot of discussion, debate and contestation about whether this was a legal move. The NLD has tried to justify it according to provisions in the constitution, but it was effectively a way to allow Ong San Suu Kyi to act as the kind of de facto leader of the government. So you have... Aung San Suu Kyi is the de facto leader of the government and you have the commander-in-chief as, in some sense, the de facto leader of the country. So when it comes to major crises and conflict like we have seen in Rakhine State, I think it's fairly clear that the commander-in-chief here has the upper hand, or at least this is very much an area where the military is largely in control. There was attempts by the military to get the NLD to work towards a constitutional emergency, to declare a constitutional emergency, which the president has the power to do. They haven't done that. And in part, they haven't done that because the NLD is concerned this might lead to some sort of more overt military takeover. So the NLD is very much trying to preserve its interests in government, and it is concerned about what a constitutional emergency might lead to. So instead, what the military has used is various forms of section 144 orders. These are a throwback to the colonial period and is effectively a way to try to justify uh, curfews, restrictions on freedom of movement, um, restrictions on freedom of assembly and so forth. So that's a long way of saying that who's in charge is a complicated question, but the short answer is that while Aung San Suu Kyi is the de facto head of government, the commander in chief is the de facto head of state.
0: You point out that the National League for Democracy and Aung San Suu Kyi are resistant to the introduction of a constitutional state of emergency in Rakhine State, partly because they're worried about the implications for their government. Is there anything else that they might have done to intervene or otherwise address the massive military violence in Rakhine State? I mean, this is a persistent issue internationally, of course, that it seems as if NLD is either inactive or resisting appeals for it to do something about the violence. And that was exemplified when Nong San Suu Kyi came to the International Court of Justice in The Hague to defend the government's position. Is there anything that might have enabled her or her party in government to be more proactive than they are?
1: So I think this is perhaps not so much a, a constitutional issue, but of course, as a government, I think, yes, there are things that they could have done that they haven't. I think what's striking, given the you know horrific scale and nature of this crisis and the protracted humanitarian disaster that it has led to, is that the NLD is still prioritising their own self-interests in many ways. You have to keep in mind, so the... Narrative around terrorism has been very strong in Myanmar. So since 2017, many in the NLD have also believed the narrative that the conflict that emerged in Rakhine State was the result of Muslim terrorists. So there's very little sympathy for those who are the victims of this conflict. In addition, that particular point around 2016, 2017, The NLD was actually particularly paranoid about the possibility of a coup. So it's unfortunate that the NLD has not risen to the occasion, if you like, on what is really the region's most significant human rights crisis for many years and has instead, in many ways, gone along with much of what the military has wanted to do in the region and has not really stood in the way.
0: In the lead up to the 2015 election, the National League for Democracy was lobbying hard for constitutional amendments. And after Aung San Suu Kyi got that position of state councillor, it moved away from those demands. It seemed to lose interest to some extent because the immediate political expediencies were addressed through her obtaining that office. Has it taken up issues that then point towards the need for constitutional amendments subsequently or in the context of the 20? 20 election.
1: Constitutional reform was certainly a key mandate of the NLD and was one of their promises going into the 2015 elections. I think it's important to keep in mind that once Aung San Suu Kyi had this position of state councillor, there was really two things that the NLD was focused on. One was the peace process. So Aung San Suu Kyi, as state councillor, very much took on the leadership role of that process, whereas in the past, under the previous government, it was the president. Now, they really haven't had the success that they wanted with the peace process, and in fact, they have run into some very significant difficulties. The other key focus of the NLD was on constitutional reform, and in many ways, they did still try to push forward those ambitions, although really, by the time it came to 2020, it was very clear that that was not going to happen On the scale that the NLD had hoped. The difficulty, of course, is is that the Constitution requires more than 75% of the legislature to approve any constitutional amendment. So the NLD did initiate a formal constitutional amendment process in 2019. It concluded in early 2020. And in fact, it was quite ironic because the COVID-19 crisis obviously hit the world around February, March, 2020. And it was around that time that the NLD decided to sort of continue and finish this debate around constitutional amendment, even though it was really clear that they weren't going to get the support in the legislature that they needed to push through reforms that they thought were important, so things like removing the military from parliament and making uh, the system more democratic and more representative. So they're going into the 2020 elections, um, which is in November this year, really on the same kind of mandate in saying if you vote for us for a second term, you know, we'll still try to push through some of the changes that we haven't actually been able to achieve in the first five years.
0: For anyone who's thinking seriously about democratisation – If we can use that term in Myanmar, the end game must surely be the removal of the military from its so-called national political role, including those seats in the legislature, including the hold that it still has on certain key ministries, among other things. How is that going to happen if the military retains these positions and appears unwilling to relinquish them? I don't normally ask interviewees what they think the chances are of things happening down the track, but let me put you on the spot on this one. Can the Myanmar military somehow be dislodged from these institutions through a constitutional process or not?
1: Since 2017, this has become a much more difficult issue and I think a much more distant prospect. I have to bring in Ukoni here, who was a lawyer and advocate in Myanmar. He was tragically assassinated. And one of the things that he had stood for, although he was someone who had spoken up on many different issues of legal and constitutional reform since 2017 was the need for the removal of the military from the constitution. And he did so in fairly nuanced and often quite diplomatic ways. His assassination had a real chilling effect, I think, on these conversations. And it had a chilling effect on the NLD who felt that they were in part being targeted because Ukoni was someone who had been affiliated with them. It had a chilling effect on lawyers who had also been vocal involved in discussions around the possibilities for reform and it had a chilling effect on civil society and so really this idea of the military removing themselves or being willing to remove themselves from politics is very much I think a distant ideal and for now certainly the military is holding their ground.
0: Luke was a mentor for many up-and-coming lawyers, intellectuals, people with interests in precisely the kinds of constitutional debates that are of interest to you and that you write about at length in the book. And in the first half of our discussion, you mentioned at some point the next generation of lawyers and practitioners of people who might be able to do the kind of work that this generation, inverted commas, is not able to do. Is there, in fact, a next generation of lawyers and practitioners and activists with interests in constitutionalism emerging in Myanmar? And if so, who are they?
1: I certainly think so. I think there's a lot of hope among a younger generation, particularly among the activist or NGO community. And I do want to contrast that, I guess, particularly with academics. So, you know, in other countries, it's often legal academics who are very much involved in discussions and debates on constitutional reform and are often very actively involved in bringing cases to the court in you know making petitions to the legislature etc etc in Myanmar it's important to keep in mind that in many ways there hasn't been significant reforms to the university sector or at least there is still a very close relationship between Uh, legal academics and the government of the day. So academics are civil servants. There is still a lot of um, concern among academics in terms of what they are or aren't allowed to do. So academic freedom is not something that has been protected or sort of revived, if you like, in the transition area, particularly for legal academics, I think. It is unlikely that Efforts for change or reform are going to come from that direction. I think in contrast, it is civil society where we see much more hope, particularly among some of the minority communities who are, you know, very much concerned that they are potentially being locked out of the future of Myanmar and being locked out of debates on what that future looks like.
0: What kinds of constitutional issues are those practitioners, those communities of activism and of thought about political change in Myanmar raising presently? What matters to them?
1: In the the book, I highlight some of the key questions that I think often animate civil society. And so, you know, one is... Is the constitution democratic? Many would say it's not sufficiently democratic because in many ways, the system of representation is compromised both by the limited nature of the number of seats that are elected and those that are not, but also by the ways in which certain entrenched interests are affirmed through elections. The second issue is federalism, and certainly there are a wide range of initiatives and ideas on what a federal system might look like in Myanmar. For the younger generation, I think it is about ensuring the you know, diversity of Myanmar's society is recognised and upheld. There is, of course, a slightly more conservative view of federalism, and that's particularly by ethnic armed groups, many of which are part of the formal peace process, and many of which see this to some extent as a power grab or as a way to consolidate their claims to authority over particular territory.
0: Melissa, you mentioned at the outset that you're a scholar both of Indonesia and of Myanmar. Are you thinking and doing comparative work on the two presently and uh, now that the book is out What have you been working on since and what can we look forward to next?
1: Look, Indonesia is in a difficult situation at the moment. Many scholars and observers would agree that there has been a decline in democracy and that many of the hard-fought gains that have been made since 1998 are being wound back. So that gives me cause, I guess, for a reflection of well, how do these, how do you make these things stick? But I have to admit, the first project is still to some extent a continuation of this book. So I'm much more interested in the idea of constitutional legacies. So while I hint at this a little bit in the book, I'm interested in exploring really the significant ways in which countries that have had multiple constitutions over time continue to go back to these past constitutions. In many respects, past constitutions are not actually past. They remain part of constitutional dialogue and debate. And I think that's actually true in many countries. So often, Comparative constitutional law is based on a very American idea of constitutionalism, which is that you should have one constitution and it should last for centuries. But that's really not the case. Most countries around the world have had multiple constitutions. And in fact, some scholars have found that most constitutions only last about 19 years. So in that light, I'm interested in the ways that past constitutions have an enduring effect on constitutional debates in the future. And the way that either limits or enables the potential for constitutional reform or particularly for democratic reform.
0: And is that a wide-ranging international inquiry or are you especially interested in Southeast Asian cases?
1: So that's still Southeast Asia. Some of my interest in particular in relation to Myanmar has ranged more broadly to look at South Asia. Um, So I've been doing some collaborative work with scholars from South Asia because the legal histories are, of course, very similar, and yet it provides the opportunity to think about the different trajectories of these legal systems, so why countries with a similar kind of legal origin have had very different constitutional trajectories.
0: Thank you very much, Melissa Crouch, for joining me to discuss the Constitution of Myanmar, a contextual approach. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening. If Myanmar is a country of special interest to you, then you might also like to check out the interview I did a few months ago with Roman David and Ian Holiday on their liberalism and democracy in Myanmar. And if it's constitutionalism that's of interest to you, then you may like to listen to Ben Shonthal talking with Luke Thompson about Buddhism, politics, and the limits of law, the Pyrrhic constitutionalism of Sri Lanka. These and tens of thousands of other interviews are available for you to listen to absolutely free on the New Books Network website right now or from wherever you get your podcasts.